please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. In this passage, God commands Moses to ascend Mount Sinai with two tablets of stone. On Mount Sinai, God appears in the form of a cloud. Again, this is a theophany. As God appears in the form of a cloud, he reminds Moses of two very important attributes that he possesses. Two very important attributes that God possesses. God is merciful and he is just. He is merciful and he is just. We see God revealing these attributes to Moses in verses 6 and 7. So Exodus chapter four, 34, beginning in verse 1. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Here in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has entrusted to him and to the rest of the apostles the ministry of reconciliation or the message of reconciliation. It's in this message of reconciliation that we see God's justice and mercy in Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please look with me in your order of worship at the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together a Belgic Confession Article 20. Belgic Confession Article 20. As always, we as the congregation will recite this article together. Well, Christian, what do you believe about God's justice and mercy in Christ? We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent his son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. So God may known his justice toward his son, who is charged with our sin, and he poured out his goodness and mercy on us, who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his son to die by a most perfect love, and raising him to life for our justification, in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word this morning. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your book of creation, that most elegant book in which all creatures serve as signs, symbols, and characters that point to your existence, your glory, uh, your, and your just judgment against sin. Oh Lord, we thank you. Uh, most of all, that you have revealed yourself to us specially. Uh, we recognize this morning that you revealed yourself in theophanies throughout the Old Testament, but we thank you that your record of redemptive history has been encapsulated in a book, and this book has been preserved throughout the ages so that we can be here this morning to hear, to read, but most importantly, to inwardly digest this teaching for our edification and growth in Christ. Uh, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, boys and girls, uh, God, as you know, made us with both hearts and mouths. And because he has given us hearts and mouths, we are called to use our hearts and mouths. And so what are we called to do with our hearts and with our mouths? Eleanor? Believe and confess. Well, we believe and confess God to be what? What is God? What is God? Lise? Simple, single, and spiritual. How is this single, simple, and spiritual God revealed? How is he revealed? How is he revealed? Anybody know how is this single, simple, and spiritual God revealed? Violet? Creation and scripture. Speaking of scripture, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Isaiah? The authoritative word of God. What else is the Bible, Micah? Sufficient and inspired. inspired. Now, the Bible is all about our triune God from Genesis to Revelation. And so, what is the Trinity? Yes, uh, Lillian. One essence, three persons. Now, within the Trinity, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ within the Trinity? Who is Jesus Christ within the Trinity? Uh, yes. Eternally begotten Son. Who is the Holy Spirit within the Trinity? Annabelle? Proceeds from the Father and the Son. Eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Good. Now, our triune God is the author of creation. What do we believe about, about creation? What do we believe about creation? Micah? Made from nothing. Yes, God created all things from nothing. Well, our triune God is also the author of providence. What is providence? What is providence? Ezekiel? God's governing of all of his creation. Exactly. God's governance of all of his creation. Now, zeroing in again on creation, God created man in whose image? Lillian? Yes. In God's image and likeness. Uh, What do we believe about original sin? Adam and Eve didn't stay in that, that state of innocence. What do we believe about original sin? What do we believe about original sin? Matthias? Oh, come on. In Adam's sin, we all. There we go. In Adam's sin, sin we all. Now, we are currently in the grace section of the Belgian Confession, and the confession begins by speaking about grace and eternity, election and reprobation. And what attributes of God are manifest in election reprobation, Marcus? Yes, mercy and, and justice. Um, God's grace in eternity is manifest in election. God chose us before the foundation of the world. And then the confession moves to consider God's grace in history. God makes what kind of covenant with his redeemed people? A covenant of, Lonnie? Grace. Grace. And then the last several weeks, we've been looking at grace defined in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the two natures of Christ. Last week, we looked at how Jesus is one person in two natures, and these natures are united in that one person of Jesus Christ, but yet they retain their own distinct properties. Well, today we're going to see and consider God's grace accomplished or redemption accomplished as we consider God's mercy and justice coming together. And at the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, with nearly every article 
in the Belgic Confession, there are heresies that stand in the background that Guido de Bray, the author, is responding to. In fact, this is how doctrine develops. Doctrine developed throughout church history because of, in part, the presence of heretics and heresies. The flow of church history goes something like this. There's a man who believes the Bible, and he starts teaching things that the rest of the church uh, deems to be unbiblical. Consequently, then, the church responds by holding a synod or a council, and the church confesses what they believe the Bible teaches on that issue or on that doctrine. This is how doctrine develops throughout the centuries. In nearly every article, then, there is a heretic or a heresy that stands in the background that Debray is responding to. So what is the heresy, what is the, the heretic that's standing in the background of Article 20? Well, in the second century, there was a man named Marcion, and he put forward this view that the Old Testament was all about this God of justice and wrath. And the New Testament is about the God of love. Marcion then placed a radical separation between the two testaments and between these two attributes of God, God's justice and God's mercy. He even went so, uh, so far to say that we really don't need the Old Testament. We don't really need uh, to focus upon this God of wrath and this God of justice. We are just to focus upon the New Testament and this God of love. Now, this oftentimes is the default position of, a, of most Christians today. A lot of Christians instinctively or intuitively think that the Old Testament doesn't have a lot to teach us. We should just focus upon the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, the epistles. Furthermore, the Old Testament God seems a little bit uncomfortable to us. He seems to be a wrathful, vengeful God. Um, a lot of Christians would say, we, I really like the God of the New Testament better. He seems loving and gracious and merciful. Well, that thinking goes all the way back to Marcion in the second century. Well, what do we believe about these two attributes of God, God's justice and God's mercy? The title of this article, which is not printed for you in the bulletin, is The Justice and Mercy of God in Christ. So if Marcion got it wrong, if he posited a radical separation between these two attributes of God, then how should we think about these two attributes of God? What do we believe about God's justice and mercy in Christ? As we consider this topic, I'd like to do so in three ways. First, we'll consider the simplicity of God. Second, we'll consider God's justice towards his son. And last of all, we'll consider God's mercy towards us. The simplicity of God first. Second, God's justice towards his son. Third, God's mercy towards us. Well, boys and girls, uh, we just consider that God is single, simple, and spiritual. We review that every, every week. God is single, simple, and spiritual. Now, God's singleness, God's spirituality may seem a little bit more intuitive to us in terms of what they mean, but God's simplicity. What does it mean that God is simple? Does anyone remember what that means, boys and girls? What, what does it mean that God is simple? Ezekiel? Okay, he's not composite, he's, he's one. So his singleness and his spirituality defined his simplicity. God is not many, he's one. God does not have a body and a soul that can be separated, he is spiritual. So because he is spiritual, because he is single, because he's not a composite being, he is simple. Not in the sense that he's easy to understand, but again, the sense that he's single and spiritual. 
Another way we can think about God's simplicity is that he is all of his attributes all at the same time. God is all of his attributes all at the same time. Well, we shouldn't think of God as an apple pie where you have 15% justice, 15% love, 15% omnipotence, and so on and so forth. And then when you put all those slices together, you have God. That's, that's not how we should think about God. No, God is 100% of all of his attributes all at the same time. He just is. What this means for us then is that there is no tension or opposition within the attributes of God. We can't pit one attribute against another attribute because he is all of his attributes all at the same time. He is simple. This then stands in the background of article chapter 20. So consider what we confess at the very beginning of this article. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just. God is perfectly merciful, but at the same time, he's very just. The confession is reminding us that there is no opposition between God's justice or wrath and his mercy or his grace. God is perfectly merciful and very just at the same time. He is simple. Scripture reflects what we confess here in Article 20. Think back to Exodus 34, which we recently read. God reveals himself to Moses in the Old Testament, mind you, as being merciful and gracious, but also as being just. Again, this is what God says in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Even in the Old Testament, God is revealed as perfectly merciful, but also very just. He will by no means clear the guilty. Well, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, God reveals himself in the same way as perfectly merciful and also very just. Listen to how Paul concludes the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O our Lord, come. And then he says in verse 23, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he can say in the same breath, Let all those who are outside of Christ be accursed. But for those of you who are in Christ, may the grace of the Lord be with you. So both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God is perfectly merciful and also very just. There is no opposition between these two attributes of God because God is simple. One author puts it this way. He says that God communicates himself in the categories of the courtroom because he is just and in the category of the family room, because he's merciful and gracious. 
God can reveal himself in these two various forms because he is simple. He's the God of the courtroom and he's the God of the family room. We see him reveal himself in this way both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Well, we've already seen in the Belgian Confession that we were made in God's image, but in Adam's sin, sinned we all. Because Adam transgressed that, that covenant of works, the commandment of life, we all are conceived and born in sin. Because God is just, he cannot wink away our sin. He cannot just turn his back on our sin. Because God is just, sin, which is committed against God's supreme majesty, must be punished with what? A supreme penalty. A supreme penalty. This is what God's justice requires. This is the fundamental problem for sinners. What's God's solution to this problem? Well, he sends forth his son into this world to take upon himself a real human nature. Jesus, in his humanity, is like us in every way, sin except, except for sin. This is what we considered in Articles 18 and Articles 19, Article 18 and 19. Jesus became like us in every way except for sin. He assumed this nature so that he could bear the most severe wrath of God that our sin has merited. So that he could bear that supreme penalty that our sin has earned. So that he could descend into hell, metaphorically, on our behalf. Jesus assumed our nature that he might bear God's just judgment against our sin. On the cross, God poured out his justice upon his son. This is what Calvary is all about. This is what Good Friday is. God pouring out his justice upon his son. We see this in, in Article 20. As uh, the article continues, it says that we believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent his son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death, so God may know his justice toward his son, who is charged with our sin. Paul establishes this point for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we read earlier. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin. For our sake, God made Christ to be our sin. God charged to Christ's account our sin. All of our sin. Even the sins that we have not committed yet were charged to Christ's account even though Christ himself knew no sin, even though Christ himself was perfect, blameless, and righteous, God made known his justice toward his son who is charged with our sin. This is what Jesus came to do in his humanity, to bear God's just judgment that our sin has merited. In Christ, then, God's justice and wrath have been satisfied. Because of this, God then is able to pour out his mercy and grace upon us as sinners. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that in Christ, God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. 
Because of Christ's death on the cross, God is able to uphold his justice while at the same time justifying the wicked. Remember what God said in Exodus 34, that he will by no means clear the guilty. God is a God of justice. And therefore, in order for us to be forgiven, in order for him to show grace and mercy to us, his justice needs to be satisfied. And therefore, in Christ, God is able to uphold his justice and at the same time justify the wicked, justify the ungodly. God's grace and mercy are not cheap. They require the death of the Son of God. They require that God's justice and wrath be satisfied. This is precisely what we learn in Article 20 as we read, So God made known his justice toward his Son, who is charged with our sin, and he poured out his goodness and mercy on us, who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his Son to die by a most perfect love and raising him to life for our justification, in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. Now, what are these gifts of grace and mercy that God bestows upon us? What are these gifts of grace and mercy that God bestows upon us because he uh, previously poured out his justice upon his son? Well, Article 20 tells us that one of these gifts is the gift of justification. It's the gift of justification that Christ was raised for our justification. What is justification? Well, it's God looking at us through the lens of Christ. And when God looks at us through the lens of Christ, he sees someone who has never sinned. Meaning he he sees someone who has no debts, who has no wrath that needs to be satisfied. But he also sees someone who has always obeyed. Someone who has a wealth of righteousness in his or her account. This is how God views you according to your justification. This is how God views you through the lens or prism of Christ. Well, another gift of grace that we receive is the gift of immortality. We look forward to that day when we will be raised to life immortal. We will have bodies that mirror the very body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be raised uh, and given bodies that are absolutely indestructible. Death has been conquered. We also are given the gift of eternal life. Our hope is not a hope in the lake of fire. It's in the new creation. We have the hope of eternal life. Again, this point is established by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, as he continues, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, our sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying that on the cross, this great transaction occurred. God charged our sin to Christ's account, but at the same time, God charged Christ's righteousness to our account. There was this double imputation that occurred. Our sin was charged, leveled to Christ's account, but then all of Christ's merits and good works and holiness and perfection was was imputed, charged to our account. Or to put it another way, God manifests his justice towards his son so that he could bestow his grace and mercy upon us as sinners. This 
This is how God's grace and justice, God's mercy and justice come together in Christ. Now, as we move towards the conclusion, I'd like to reflect upon how this applies to us as a church as a whole, and then how it applies to us as individuals within the church. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes this point that God has entrusted to him and the rest of the apostles both the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. Or to put it another way, God has entrusted to Paul and the rest of the apostles this message of how God's justice and mercy come together in Christ. Because of this, Paul says that he and the rest of the apostles are ambassadors for God. God is making his appeal through them. We read that in verse 20. Uh, Paul saying this, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, in the post-apostolic age, of course, there are no more apostles. And so this message of reconciliation has been entrusted to the church and to her officers, pastors and elders. The church then has been given the mission of proclamation, of imploring people to be reconciled to God. The church has been commissioned to proclaim this message of how God's justice and mercy unite in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many institutions in our day and age that are more competent than the church to feed the poor, to help the marginalized, to set up academic institutions, medical clinics, or even political or cultural um, organizations. But there is no other institution that's been given the authority or promised the competency to proclaim this message. This is the mission that Christ has given to the church. Now, it's a basic point, yes, but it's a point that the church is tempted to drift from in every age. The church has been commissioned to proclaim this message of how God's justice and mercy are found in Christ. The church has been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. It's this message that not only saves us, but it's this message that motivates true obedience in our Christian lives. This is precisely why we need this message as Christians. Precisely why we need to be a part of churches that proclaim this message of reconciliation. Our liturgy is really like, um, you can think of our liturgy as prongs that hold up the diamond of, of this message, this gospel of God's justice and mercy in Christ. Think of our morning liturgy, our communion service liturgy. We hear both the law and the gospel of God's justice and mercy throughout. Not just in the sermon, but in the Lord's Supper and the reading of the law and the declaration of pardon. We hear it throughout. Our liturgy are the prongs that hold up the diamond of this gospel message. Well, how does this, this article apply to us as individuals within the church? Well, we're not only called to believe this message, and yes, we are called to believe this message. We're called to understand it. We're called to believe that it's true, meaning we are to, to give our assent to the veracity of these things. And we're called to trust in it personally. That God's just judgment against your sin that you commit has been satisfied. That God has a disposition of mercy towards you. We are to trust this personally. But we're not 
only called to believe. We're also called to imitate God's justice and mercy in Christ. We are called to imitate God's justice and mercy in Christ. Now, Matthew chapter 5, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells his followers and his disciples, he, he tells them that if someone slaps you on the cheek, you are to turn the other cheek. If someone forces you to go one mile, what are you, what, what are you to do? Go two miles. If someone takes your tunic, we'll give them your cloak as well. Now, justice says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Justice says that if you are slapped on the cheek, then you slap the other person on the cheek. Justice says that if someone forces you to go one mile, you force them to go one mile. Justice says that if someone takes your tunic, you take their cloak off their back. That's eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say pursue justice. No, he says that his followers are to bear the offender's just penalty and in so doing display mercy toward that offender. Jesus is saying that his followers are to bear in their own person the just penalty of that person's actions so that they can be merciful and gracious towards uh, the offender or the offenders. This is what is modeled for us in the cross. In our sin, we have slapped God in the cheek. God doesn't respond by administering justice towards us. He doesn't slap us back on the cheek, as it were. He bears that second retaliatory slap. He satisfies his own claims to justice so that he can be merciful to us. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, we are to imitate that ethic. We are to take the second retaliatory slap. We are to go the second mile. We are to give the cloak off our back. We are to bear that just penalty that our offender deserves so that we can be merciful towards our offender. 1 Peter 4, Peter says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might, you might walk in his steps. We are to imitate our suffering Lord. This is one way in which we imitate our suffering Lord. Now, this ethic is distinctive to the church. The civil magistrate is not to turn the other cheek. Paul is very clear that in Romans 13, the civil magistrate bears the sword of justice. This ethic is the ethic that we are to display as members of Christ's church. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to live as if justice has already been satisfied so that we can display mercy and grace towards our fellow believer. Well, Marcion was wrong. There's not a radical separation between God's justice and mercy. God is perfectly merciful and also very just. These two attributes kiss not under a mistletoe, but under the cross of Jesus Christ. And so next week, we'll turn our attention to the atonement, which is Jesus' death. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Is this merely an example to imitate? Is it our salvation? Was God the Father involved in the death of his son? These are the questions that we'll turn